Part fourteen of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Brown. Works of Gaius Sallustius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Jugurthine War. Part five. When the information of this was received at Rome, fear and grief fell upon the state. Some sorrowed for the glory of their empire. Others, in their ignorance of the affairs of war, feared for their freedom. Everyone, especially those who had often gained distinction in war, was bitter against Aulus for having, though possessed of arms, sought safety in dishonor rather than the sword. The consul Albinus, in his fear of odium and consequent danger from his brother's misconduct, consulted the Senate as to the peace. Meanwhile he levied reinforcements for the army, summoned contingents from the allies and the Latin citizens, and in fact showed energy in every possible way. The Senate, as was their duty, from the first, decreed that without the consent of itself and the people, no agreement could have had the force of a treaty. The consul was prevented by the tribunes of the people from taking the forces which he had levied with him, but started himself in a few days to Africa, for his entire army, in accordance with the agreement, had evacuated Numidia, and was now in winter quarters in the province. He arrived there, burning to pursue Jugurtha, and so relieve his brother's unpopularity. But the sight of his soldiers, disorganized, not only by their route, but by the disorder and luxury of a relaxed state of discipline, convinced him that with the means at his disposal nothing was to be done. Meanwhile at Rome, Gaius Manilius Limitanus, a tribune of the commons, proposed to the people that an inquiry should be held as to all persons, by whose advice Jugurtha had disregarded the decrees of the Senate, who had received bribes from him when on embassies or military commands, or who had restored to him his elephants and deserters, and also as to all who had made agreements with an enemy either for peace or war, some in their consciousness of their guilt, others in their fear of danger from party hatred, finding themselves unable to openly resist the bill without arousing their favor for these and similar malpractices, prepared secretly to obstruct it by means of their friends, and particularly by the help of men from the Latin towns, and the Italian allies. It is impossible, however, to relate with what determination and violence the commons supported the bill, and this such was the passion that possessed the contending parties, rather from hatred of the nobility, against whom these penalties were aimed, than from any patriotic feeling. While all the others were stricken with dismay, Marcus Scaurus, who, as I related above, had been Bestia's lieutenant, amid the triumph of the commons and the rout of his own party, in the confusion which still prevailed in the state, managed to have himself appointed one of the three judges created in accordance with the bill of Manilius. The inquiry, however, was conducted with harshness and violence according to the reports and caprices which prevailed among the commons, who at this crisis were possessed by the same insolence in their good fortune as had so often governed 
the nobility in theirs. A few years before this, party divisions and cabals, with all the bad qualities they bring with them, had become common at Rome in a period of peace, and of the abundance of such things as men esteem the first of blessings. Down to the destruction of Carthage, the people and senate of Rome between them administered the state peacefully and soberly. There was no strife among the citizens for glory or supremacy, and fear of its enemies kept the state to the exercise of honorable qualities. When, however, men's minds were relieved of this fear, as a natural consequence, wantonness and arrogance, the favorite vices of prosperity, made their appearance. Thus the repose for which amid their calamities they had longed proved, when they had obtained it, more troublesome and bitter than calamity itself. The nobility now made dignity, the people freedom, the objects of party passion, and every one seized, plundered, and robbed for his own hand. Thus everything was drawn to one or other side, and the state which had stood between them was torn asunder. Of the two parties the nobility were the stronger, owing to their power of common action. The force of the commons, weakened and scattered in a multitude of hands, was less effective. All action, both in war and in home affairs, was taken at the discretion of a clique. The same party controlled the treasury, the provinces and civil offices, and the awards of reputation and triumph. The people were ground down by military service and want. The spoils of war were seized by the generals and shared with a few accomplices, and meanwhile the parents and little children of the soldiers were thrust from their homesteads by their more powerful neighbors, hand in hand with power, avarice, unlimited and unrestrained, spread abroad, and while it caused general pollution and devastation, held nothing as estimable, nothing as sacred, until it worked its own ruin. As soon as members of the nobility were found to prefer true glory to unjust dominion, the state was shaken, and civil strife sprang into being like some convulsion of the earth. Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, men whose ancestors had done much to advance the state in the Punic and other wars, first asserted the liberty of the commons and exposed the crimes of the clique. The nobility, in guilty terror, opposed their proceedings at one time by means of the allies and the Latin citizens, at another by the Roman knights who had been drawn from the side of the commons by the hope of an alliance with themselves. First they cut off Tiberius, and then a few years afterwards his brother Gaius, who was entering on the same course, the one a tribune, the other a commissioner for establishing colonies. And besides these they killed Marcus Fulvius Flaccus. The Gracchi, in their desire for victory, had certainly shown a too intemperate disposition, it is better, however, to be defeated by a good precedent than to crush a wrong by means of a bad one. As it was, the nobility used their victory to indulge their own passion, made away with many persons by sword or banishment, and for the future gained in the terror they inspired rather than in real power. Such conduct has often proved the ruin of great states. Each party is ready to use any means to defeat the other, and to punish the defeated too severely. But were I to set about treating of party passions, 
and the condition of public morals in any detail, or in proportion to the importance of the question, my time would fail me sooner than my material. I therefore return to my task. After the Treaty of Aulus, and the disgraceful flight of our army, the consuls Quintus Metellus and Marcus Silanus, in accordance with a resolution of the Senate, had settled on their respective provinces, and that of Numidia had fallen to Metellus, a man of energy, whose reputation, though he was an opponent of the popular party, was unshaken and unblemished. No sooner had he entered office than, while accounting everything else as duties to be shared with his colleague, he concentrated his attention on the war which he was about to conduct. Placing little confidence in the old army, he levied soldiers and summoned troops from all quarters, made ready armor, weapons, horses, and other instruments of warfare, with an abundance of provisions, and everything, in fact, which in a war of variable character and of many requirements is wont to be of service. The Senate, by its influence, the Allies, Latin citizens, and dependent kings, by freely sending contingents, and, above all, the whole state, by the earnestness of its zeal, used every exertion to complete these measures. When everything was prepared and arranged to his wish, the consul set out for Numidia amid the high hopes of the citizens, which were roused not only by his talents, but especially by the unswerving resolution with which he resisted the temptations of wealth, and by the fact that it was by the greed of our officers in Numidia that our strength had hitherto been crushed, and that of our enemies augmented. On the arrival of Metellus in Africa, he received from Spurius Albinus, the proconsul, an indolent and cowardly army, unable to bear either danger or toil, readier of tongue than of hand, the spoiler of its allies and the spoil of its enemies, without government and without discipline. Thus more anxiety fell to the new general from the bad character of his soldiers than reinforcement or hope from their numbers. The delay of the elections had shortened his time for a campaign, and he suspected that the minds of the citizens were strained with expectation of some decisive action. Nevertheless, he determined not to engage in active war before he had forced his men to endure toil by reviving the ancient discipline. Stunned by the defeat of his brother Aulus and his army, Albinus, after coming to the determination not to advance beyond the province, for the part of the usual campaigning time during which he was in command, kept his soldiers as a rule in fixed camps except when the effluvium or a scarcity of food compelled him to change his position. These camps were not entrenched, nor were watches set according to military custom. The men left the standards at their own pleasure. Camp followers mingled with the soldiers and roamed about with them by day and night. In their excursions they wasted the land, plundered the country houses, vied with each other in carrying off cattle and slaves, and bartered them away to traders for foreign wine, and the like. The corn with which the state supplied them they sold, and bought their bread from day to day. In fine, there is no shameful outcome of wantonness and sloth that words can express our imagination figure that was not to be found in that army, and more besides. 
I find, however, that Metellus showed his greatness and wisdom no less in this difficulty than in dealing with an enemy. With such self-command did he keep the mean between popularity-seeking and severity. As his first step he abolished by edict all the appliances of sloth, forbidding the sale in the camp of bread or any other cooked food, the presence of camp followers in the track of the army, or the possession by a common soldier of any slave or beast of burden, either in the camp or on the march. On all other points he laid down strict rules. Moving along crossroads, he shifted his camp from day to day, fortified it with rampart and trench, as if in presence of the enemy, set numerous watches, and went the rounds in person with his officers. On the march he was now in the van, now in the rear, often too with the main body, and saw that no one left the ranks, that the soldiers marched in close order with the standards, and that each man carried his own food and arms. By this course of restraining, rather than punishing offenses, he soon gave stability to his army. Meanwhile Jugurtha, on hearing the report of what Metellus was doing, and being assured from Rome of his integrity, despaired of his fortunes, and now, at last, tried to make a real surrender. With this object he sent an entreating embassy to the consul to, to beg only his life for himself and his children, everything else they were to surrender to the Roman people. Experience, however, had long ago convinced Metellus that the Numidians were a faithless and unstable race, ever eager for change. He therefore approached the ambassadors independently of each other, and tampered with them by degrees. Finding them favorable to his purpose, he persuaded them by large promises to surrender Jugurtha to him, if possible alive, but failing that, dead. Publicly he bade them take back an answer such as might satisfy the king. A few days later he invaded Numidia with an army prepared for fighting, and in hostile array. No signs of war were apparent. The cottages were occupied, cattle and husbandmen in the fields. The king's officers advanced from their towns and dwellings to meet him, ready to provide corn, convey provisions, and in fact do whatever they were ordered. Nonetheless Metellus advanced guardedly, as if in the presence of an enemy, sent his scouts far and wide in every direction, and believed these marks of submission to be a mere show, and that an opportunity was being sought for a sudden attack. He himself, with the light cohorts, and a chosen body of slingers and bowmen, was in the front. In the rear his lieutenant Gaius Marius was in command with the cavalry. The auxiliary cavalry Metellus had divided between the two flanks, under the several tribunes of the legions and officers of the cohorts, in such a manner that skirmishers were mingled with it to repulse the cavalry of the enemy at whatever point it might attack. Such was the treachery of Jugurtha, and such his acquaintance with both the country and with the art of war, that it was a question whether he were more dangerous absent or present, in peace or in war. Not far from the road along which Metellus was marching was a Numidian town named Vaga, the most frequented market of the whole kingdom, and here many Italians had been wont to settle and trade. On this town the consul imposed a garrison, 
partly for the sake of seeing whether the inhabitants would submit to it, partly on account of the advantage of the place. He further demanded that they should bring in corn and other stores useful for the war, thinking, as he had reason, that the number of traders would both aid the army with provisions and would help to secure what he had already won. While Metellus was busied with this, Jugurtha, with increasing earnestness, was sending submissive embassies, treating for peace and offering to surrender everything except the lives of himself and his children. As he had done to their predecessors, the consul, before dismissing the ambassadors, suborned them to betray their master, neither refused nor promised the king the peace he asked, and amid these delays awaited the fulfillment of the ambassador's promises. Jugurtha, when he came to compare the words of Metellus with his actions, perceived that he was being assailed with his own devices. As far as words went, peace was offered him. As a matter of fact, the war was being hotly pressed. An important city had been won from him. The enemy had learnt the nature of the land, and the loyalty of his countrymen had been tampered with. Forced by a necessity, he determined on a struggle. A knowledge of the enemy's route led him to hope for victory from the favorable nature of the ground, and, raising as great forces of every kind as he could, by means of little-known paths, he got the start of the army of Metellus. In the part of Numidia, of which Adurbal had gained possession at the time of the partition, there was a river named the Muthul, which took its rise from the south. Some twenty miles from this stream, and following the same direction, lay a barren and uncultivated mountain ridge. Almost in its midst there rose a hill stretching to an immense distance, and clothed with wild olives, myrtles, and trees of such other kinds as grow in a dry and sandy soil. Between the hills and the Muthul was a plain, barren from want of water, except in the neighborhood of the river where it was planted with trees, and thickly occupied by cattle and husbandmen. On this hill, which, as I said, lay at right angles to the road, Jugurtha took up his position in a very extended line, giving Bomilcar the command of the elephants, and a part of his infantry he instructed him what to do, while he himself remained at a point nearer the mountain with the whole body of cavalry, and the pick of the infantry and there posted his men. Then, visiting several squadrons and companies, he urged and conjured them to be mindful of their ancient valor and of victory, and to shield himself and his kingdom against the greed of the Romans. The men, he said, against whom they had to fight were those whom they had formerly beaten and led beneath the yoke, and though they had changed their general, they had not changed their spirit everything which the Numidians had a right to expect from their commander he had provided. They would hold the higher ground. Their knowledge would be matched with inexperience. They would not join in conflict as a weaker force against a stronger, or as raw recruits with men better versed in war. They must therefore, he said, hold themselves ready and on the alert to burst upon the Romans at the given signal. That day would either crown all their toil and victories, or be the beginning of the greatest miseries. Besides this, he addressed singly each man whom he had rewarded with money, 
or distinction for some warlike exploit, reminding him of his favor and pointing him out as an example to others. In fine, he suited his words to each man's character and used the various incentives of promises, threats, entreaties. As he was thus engaged, Metellus was seen descending the mountain with his army, unaware of the enemy's presence. At first he was baffled by the strange appearance of the country, for the cavalry and the Numidians had taken up their position in the brushwood, and owing to the lowness of the trees were not altogether hidden, but yet were difficult to distinguish for what they were, as their own bodies and their military ensigns were masked, both designedly and by the nature of their position. He soon, however, discovered the ambush, and ordered a short halt, Changing his formation on the right flank, which was nearest the enemy, he drew up his line with a threefold reserve, distributed slingers and bowmen among the companies, and placed all his cavalry on the wings. And, after a few words of suitable encouragement to his soldiers, led his force in its new formation, with the front ranks at right angles to the line of march, down to the level ground, he remarked, that the Numidians remained quiet and did not descend the hill, and in that season, and in the scarcity of water, felt a fear lest his army should be exhausted by thirst. He therefore sent forward his lieutenant, Publius Rutilius, with some light cohorts and a part of the cavalry towards the river to seize a position for a camp, expecting that the enemy would hinder his own advance by frequent charges and flank attacks and, in their distrust of the sword, would try what the weariness and thirst of his soldiers would avail them. He himself then made a gradual advance, such as his means and situation allowed, in the same order in which he had descended the hill. Marius was behind in command of the troops facing the enemy. He himself, with the cavalry of the left wing, which in the new order of marching was become the van, End of Jugurthine War, Part 5